I know that we've read Revelation 22. I would encourage you to have your Bible open. As we talk about this passage, we're just going to work through it together this morning. And so you want to have a copy of the Scriptures open. I want to say to you at the beginning, thank you. Uh, I was gone last week. I missed you last week. I was actually here. I came in the morning and studied and uh, helped get things set up for worship. And then I drove to Big Spring and I preached for a friend who pastors a small church outside of Big Spring. And I just want to say to you as a church, thank you for allowing me to do that. And thank you for allowing some of our men to do that. One of the things our church has tried to do over the last couple of years is to be a resource for smaller churches and pastors of smaller churches in the area. Uh, It's difficult to pastor a small church in West Texas for a number of reasons, one of which is it's hard to find pulpit supply. Uh, We don't have a local association of Baptist churches. Normally, that's what pastors of small churches do, as they call the local association. They talk to the director of missions. They say, I'm going to be gone. I need somebody, and he's got a list, or maybe he can go. Uh, We don't have that here, uh, which is a whole other story, but we don't have that. And so there's a lot of guys in the area who feel like when they leave town, they don't have somebody in their church Uh, trustworthy that they can have preach for them. And so I've done that a couple of times over the summer on weeks when we had men who were scheduled to preach here. And regularly, Corey or Chris or uh, Jason or some of our other men, not staff, not elders, will go and preach at different churches. And I just want to say thank you uh, for that, for the freedom for me and for our men to help these other churches in the area. We want to be a blessing to them and uh, just grateful for you as a church. Grateful that uh, we have men in this church that when I'm gone, I don't have to worry and wonder, what are they going to say? What's going to happen? Is the wheels going to come off the bus when I'm gone? Uh, But you have men that can stand up and preach faithfully, and I'm thankful for that. This morning, we're going to continue our summer sermon series talking about knowing Jesus. We're just taking the summer months to remind ourselves about some basic truths about who Jesus is. And hopefully, prayerfully, those truths are changing us week after week as we think about these truths. So we started off talking about Jesus as the ruler, and we talked about Jesus as the Savior. Ron Hinesley preached, and he talked to us about Jesus being our friend. What does it mean that Jesus is our friend? Uh, We spent one Sunday talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is faithful? Last week, When I was gone, Jason Westfall preached, and he talked about Jesus being our mediator. What does it mean that Jesus is our mediator? And the big idea this morning, the one truth that we're going to land on and talk about is the truth that Jesus is returning. He is coming back to this earth. Jesus is returning. Normally, when we talk about people returning... We think about maybe a summer vacation, and you go, and it's over all too quickly, and you say, now it's time we have to return home, or we just sent out a team to Kenya, and they're there, they travel around the world, they do all sorts of ministry, and then before you know it, it's time for their return trip home, and we pray for their trip there, and we pray for their return. If you're a sports fan, and you like college sports, Whatever your favorite team may be, the big debate these days because of a thing called the transfer portal is, is our team coming back? Who's coming back? 
Who's going to return to campus? Is everybody going to transfer and go somewhere else so that they can play more, they can get away from this mean coach? Who's going to leave and who's going to return? If you like professional sports, the question is usually centered on a high-profile free agent superstar. And are they going to sign somewhere else or are they going to return to their team? So we think about returning in lots of different contexts. And I just want to say to you at the outset that when we talk about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth, we are talking about something that is of a completely different category and magnitude than returning from a trip or returning to a sports team. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, who created everything that exists. Nothing exists that was not created by Him. The Word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived a life of perfect righteousness and died a sacrificial death on the cross, who was buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, He is coming back. He's returning to this earth. It's a marvelous thought. It's something that's just almost too big for your mind to take in when you think about the glory of what will be involved in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage is in the book of Revelation. I just want to say a few things about the book of Revelation at the outset. The first is that the book of Revelation is tricky. And it's tricky because it is a combination of genres. There are multiple types of writing all woven together in the book of Revelation. There's apocalypse, apocalyptic writing. There's prophecy, prophetic writing. We read several references in Revelation 22 to the words of this prophecy. And the entire book is an epistle. It's a letter. And all of that is wrapped up. It's not like you can move from one type of writing to the next. All of Revelation is all of that stuff. It's really complex. As apocalyptic writing... It's not necessarily focused on the end, like we think of apocalyptic movies focusing on the end of the world, but it's a revealing of what is true and real that you can't see with your eyes. It's a pulling back of the curtain of reality to show you what's real. As prophecy, it certainly has something to say about the future, but that's not most of what Revelation actually talks about. As a work of prophecy, what Revelation does is it pulls from the Old Testament and brings it into the present day. The present day for John's readers, the present day for you and me, and into the future. One of the things that struck me as our men have studied through the book of Revelation, I did some work on that study for the fall this last week, is how many Old Testament illusions there are in the book of Revelation. You can't move one verse in any direction without bumping into something that is pulled from and drawn from the Old Testament. That's what it is as a work of prophecy. Pulling from what God has said and bringing it in to the present. And it's a letter. It's a letter, a book written by a real person in a real place to real people in real churches in a real time. The whole thing is grounded in space-time history. And it's not just these weird ideas floating around in the clouds and you can pull them down and make of them what you want. But it has an actual historical context that you have to understand. And it's all of that in one big book. It's why it's a difficult book to understand and a difficult book to make sense of. One of the things that may help you as you read the book of Revelation is to remember or to understand 
that the book of Revelation is not linear, it's recursive, or you could say it's circular. So a lot of people try to read Revelation as if it's linear. They start at the beginning and they say, okay, uh, point A, and then we're going to move through the book in a straight line and we're going to move to point B, and we're going to map that out on human history or church history or the last seven years of history on the earth. We're going to move A to B in a straight line and everything has to fit one thing after the next. That creates great confusion because that's not the kind of writing Revelation is. It's a recursive document. It's a circular document. John keeps circling back, just like the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He keeps circling back over the same material, and he'll talk to you about this period of human history from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Jesus. Then he stops, he takes the camera, he puts the camera in a new angle, and he says, let me tell you the same thing from a different perspective. Then he's going to stop. He's going to reset the camera again. He's going to say, now I'm going to focus in on something in particular. I'm going to talk about the same period from a different perspective again. It's recursive in its writing. One last thing that will help you in Revelation is that you have to read the book of Revelation in light of everything else that's in the Bible, especially when you think about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other really important passages that you have to read and use to interpret the book of Revelation. That's how Christians study the Bible, is they use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's called the analogy of faith. And so we look at passages like Matthew 24 and 25. This says 2 Corinthians 15. It should be 1 Corinthians 15, which is part of our call to worship earlier. We look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. All these passages in the New Testament, and we read them alongside the book of Revelation so that we understand our interpretation is moving in the right direction. Now we're going to work through this passage. Let me just talk to you about American history for a minute. I want to acknowledge, as we think about the return of Jesus, I want to acknowledge that there have been times in American history where people have gotten very, very excited about the return of Jesus. And I don't just mean a few people got really excited and everyone thought they were kind of weird. I mean like lots of people got really excited about the return of Jesus. For example, in the year 1782, there was a man born by the name of William Miller. William Miller, born in 1782. William Miller, I hate to admit this, he was a preacher and he was a Baptist preacher. I wish I could tell you he was a Methodist, but he was a Baptist. He was a Baptist preacher, and he read the book of Revelation, and he read the book of Daniel, And he read other passages in the New Testament, and he tried to read them, especially the book of Revelation and Daniel, as if they moved from point A to point B. And he thought he knew when to set point A, and he thought he could do the math in adding up numbers to get to point B, and he became convinced that Jesus Christ was going to return to the earth in 1843. 1843. Now, when I say he became convinced... I mean to say to you that he convinced a lot of people. And when I say to you that he convinced a lot of people, I don't mean like as many as are in this room. I don't mean like hundreds. I don't mean thousands. I don't mean tens of thousands. I mean hundreds of thousands of people. Followed his teaching, listened to his preaching, believed in this timeline that he had come up with, and many of them leading up to 1843 quit their jobs, sold their houses, liquidated their lives, went out into the wilderness to wait for Jesus Christ to come back with William Miller in 1843. 
Guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Church historians call it the great disappointment. That's an awkward spot if you're William Miller, isn't it? What he did is he went back to the drawing board and he said to all of his followers, I think I've made an arithmetic mistake. I, I thought it was 1843. I forgot to carry the one. It's really 1844. Just one more year. One more year, 1844. Guess what happened in 1844? 1845 rolled around. And 46, 47. People reacted differently who had followed William Miller. This was his timeline, his chart, some of the things he laid out from the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, how he moved to point A to point B. People reacted differently. Uh, Some people left the Christian faith entirely. They were completely disillusioned and burned by this man who claimed to speak for God. So they just said, we want nothing to do with any of this. Some people just went back to their churches, whatever their church Maybe. And some people started entire new churches, entire new denominations. And so maybe you've heard of the Jehovah's Witness. That's a group that came out of the Millerite movement. Maybe you've heard of the Seventh day Adventist. That's another group very closely related to the Jehovah's Witness and its founding that came out of the Millerite movement. People got excited, they thought Jesus was coming back. Something similar happened, and this is much more recent at the end of the 20th century in the late 1900s. People got really excited about the return of the Lord Jesus. Y2K was coming. You remember Y2K? In the year 2000, that seemed like a really important number to people as if uh, the Old Testament saints were working off the uh, Roman calendar that we use today. And 2000, that's got to be important. And people wrote a lot of books. And one of the guys that wrote a book was Edgar Wisenant. He wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, 1843 passed, 1988 passed. Hal Lindsey, you've probably heard of him, some of you. Uh, He wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And if you've been to a garage sale or an estate sale, you've seen a whole selection of colorful books called The Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. Now, those two guys didn't predict an exact date, but they tapped into something that was happening in our culture, and that was excitement about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were prophecy conferences and there were prophecy charts and there were prophecy books, hundreds of them, thousands of them written. People made an absolute mint claiming to have some special insight into the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. My aim this morning is much less ambitious than Edgar Wisenant and his 88 Reasons much less ambitious than William Miller and his predictions and his calculations. My aim is not to say to you when the Lord Jesus will return, but to say to you that He will return to this earth. And the Bible's clear about that. Jesus Himself said that He would return, and the book of Revelation testifies to that fact, and we want to listen to Revelation 22 and pull out some truths that we can hang on to. I have six of them, and after we printed the notes, I realized we're talking about the book of Revelation. Some people are going to be very disappointed that I don't have seven. Surely you could have found a seventh in here somewhere and come up with something. I have six, but if you need seven because you're that kind of person, you can write an extra little bullet point in, and you can just write in, Jesus will return. 
Point number one. Now, real point number one. The return of Jesus is soon. It's soon. And some of you are already rolling your eyes because we've talked about 1843 and 1988 and you know what the year is today. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse 6, the angel is going to show the servants what must soon take place. Jesus speaks in verse 7 and he says, I am coming soon. Verse 10, don't seal up the book. The time is near. Time is near. Verse 12, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, Jesus says again, surely I am coming soon. Just a quick date question for you. How long has it been since John wrote this book? It depends on when you think John wrote it. Most people think it's about 90 AD, give or take. So it means it's about 1,930 years old. It's been 1,930 years, give or take, since Jesus said to John that he was coming soon. So I have a couple questions for you. Wives. If your husband says to you that he is about to take the trash out and he waits 1,930 minutes to do it, is that sufficient for you? Probably not. That's not soon. Men, if you follow sports and your favorite sports team hires a new coach and this new coach has a press conference and then At the press conference, the coach says, we're going to win now, soon, quickly. The championship is near. And if they don't win for 1,930 seasons, coaches don't get that long anymore, do they? Coaches get about a year, 18 months, two years at the max. And if you don't win, we move on to somebody else. What about young people, children, youth? It's summer. Maybe you've gone on a road trip. Maybe you're going on a road trip. What's the one question that kids always ask in the car? Are we there yet? Children, if your parents say to you, we're almost there, all you have to do is wait 1,930 more years in the back seat. That's not a sufficient answer. So why does Jesus get to say, Behold, I am coming soon. And it's not like it's a slip of the tongue. Obviously, there's no slips of the tongue in the Bible, but it's not like you could even claim it's a slip of the tongue because he keeps saying it soon, 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 soon. It's near. It's soon. The answer lies in what we might call the last days. Biblically speaking, We are in the last days. Now, one of the questions pastors get all the time is, hey, pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? And I honestly don't know how to answer that question when people ask it. Because the biblical answer is, yes, we are living in the last days, and we have been living in the last days for about 2,000 years now. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to continue to be in the last days. But that's not what people are asking. You know what people are asking is, should I set an alarm for Tuesday? Are we close? Are we in this final seven-year window where Jesus is going to come back imminently, like tomorrow, like really quick? And the answer to that question is, I have absolutely no idea. But we are living in the last days. 
That's how the New Testament speaks about the last days. It's this final period of redemptive history after Jesus has been crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father. From that point all the way up until his return, those are the last days. And as Jesus thinks about it, Jesus says, these are the last days, so I'm coming soon. Now, if you don't like the way Jesus talks about his return, you're more than welcome to bring that up with him when he returns. You're more than welcome to say, I don't like the last days. I weren't the last days. It wasn't soon. I don't. You can have that conversation with Jesus when he comes back, but that's how the Bible speaks. These are the last days. Yes, he's coming soon. Does that mean Tuesday? I have no idea. Does that mean seven years? I have no idea. Does that mean a clock starts if a certain person gets elected president? I have absolutely no idea. But these are the last days and he's coming soon. Truth number two. Until Jesus returns, believers are called to keep Jesus' word and worship God. That's the call on our lives. It's not to calculate prophecy charts like William Miller did, but it is to keep his word and to worship God. So one of the things you ought to know about the book of Revelation is that there's seven blessings in the book of Revelation. There's seven times that you read, blessed is the one who... And something is laid out. The very first one is found in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. And Revelation chapter 1 verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and reads this book and keeps it. Who hears it, who reads it, and who keeps it. Blessing on that person. That's the first blessing. In our passage, if you look at verse 7, you'll find the sixth blessing. And the sixth blessing says this, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, who keeps it. You compare that to the first one and you sort of scratch your head and you say, well, now we don't have to read it or we don't have to hear it. What's going on? Why are we just keeping it? It's because by the time you get to Revelation 22, you've read it. You've heard it. At the beginning of the book, Blessed is the one who reads it and hears it and keeps it. Well, now you're at the very end. And the blessing is, now that you've read it, and now that you've heard it, keep it. When you read through the book of Revelation, the primary way that we keep this book is a question of worship. Will you worship the one true living triune God or not? Will you worship self? Will you worship yourself? And will your own comfort and economic prosperity and personal security be the thing that you worship? Will you worship God or will you worship self? Will you worship political power? Earthly power. That's to worship the beast or the dragon. Will you worship these earthly manifestations of power, or will you worship the one true and living God? Will you worship Babylon, the city of man, the city of this world, human culture? John talks about it in 1 John as don't love the world or the things of the world. Will you love the world? Will you love Babylon? Or will you love the one true 
and living God. It's spelled out in this passage as John is completely overwhelmed by all of these visions. He's done this repeatedly in Revelation. He falls down to worship at the feet of this angel, this messenger. And the messenger says, get up, knock it off. You shouldn't be worshiping me. What should you do? You should worship God. Everything in Revelation is a question of worship. Who will you worship? It's not a question of will you worship, but it's where will you direct your worship. Church, I need you to understand that when we meet together on a Sunday morning, the primary foundational thing that we're doing is worship. That is central. What happens in this room on a Sunday morning is not a performance. It's not for your entertainment. It's not for your evaluation. Well, we like that. Well, we didn't like this. Well, this was good. Well, that part of the sermon got kind of boring. That's not the aim. The aim in this room, listen carefully. I say this in every new member class that I ever teach. The aim when we gather together in this room is not even outreach. That's not the primary aim of what we're doing when we gather together as the people of God. When we gather together as the people of God on a Sunday morning on the Lord's day, our aim is worship. Not of ourselves, not of political power, not of this world or the things of this world, of the beast or of Babylon, but of the one true and living God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I say this to you regularly for a reason. One reason is we're prone to forget this as human beings. And you know that we're prone to forget it because you can look around at churches all over the world and you can say, what is the one thing that they're really doing when they get together? And many times it's not worshiping God. Secondly, I say this to you because I know how life in Odessa, Texas works. And the way that it works is that in five years, 10 years, 15 years, many of you won't live here. You'll live somewhere else. Now, not all of you. I hope you all stay. I hope most of you stay. But a lot of you are going to leave because that's how life works in Odessa. And when you leave, we're going to encourage you to find a new church. You're going to have to visit a church. You're going to have to evaluate what's going on in this church. And I'm saying to you in that experience, the primary question that you need to be asking yourself, is this a church committed to worship the one true and living God? Are they committed to performance? Are they committed to entertainment? Are they committed to celebrating this world and the things of this world? Are they focused on me as a consumer of religious products? Or are they focused on God? And that ought to be the primary thing that you use to evaluate the church that you become a part of. Some of you are here this morning, you're evaluating us. And I'm just saying to you up front, we're not here for your entertainment or to perform for you. We're not here to celebrate this world or anything in this world. We're not here to make much of you or me, but of the one true God. Worship. Keep the words of the book and worship God. Number three. The return of Jesus will be a final decisive moment for all people. I think the strangest verse in this last section that we read is verse 11. The evildoer, the filthy, the righteous, the holy. It's an odd verse. Part of your homework this afternoon can be listening to a Johnny Cash song. The song is called When the Man Comes Around. It's one of the last songs he wrote and recorded. And he doesn't exactly quote verse 11, but he alludes to it in the song. And so you can listen to Johnny Cash this afternoon for your homework. It's an odd verse, but I think it's fairly straightforward in what John is saying to us. What he's saying is that the Lord Jesus is going to return, 
and his return is going to be final and decisive for you. Specifically in terms of your eternity. The return of Jesus will be final and decisive. Now, if you don't live to see the return of Jesus, your death will serve as this moment. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed to a man, to a human, to a person to die once and then to face judgment. There is no, I'm going to die and pull out the white spiritual flag of surrender and say, God, I'm sorry, I should have taken care of this on earth, but now I want to be on your side. There's none of that. The filthy and the wicked will be filthy and wicked because they will be given over to their sin. As they're cast into this lake of fire that burns with sulfur in the end, there is no repentance in that place. There are no people in hell pleading to get out. There are people in hell who have been fully given over to their sin. On the other hand, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, those who are holy and righteous, not because of their own holiness or righteousness, but because they've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they will be kept by the Good Shepherd. He will hold them in His hand, and He will hold them secure forever. There will be no falling away of the people of God in their glorified state. And I think that's what John's describing in verse 11, the finality and the decisiveness of death and the return of Jesus. And as we talk about that, I would just like to hit pause and press this home to you and say, are you ready for that final decisive moment? Because it will be final, and it will be decisive. Are you ready for this moment when the evildoer will forever do evil, and the filthy will forever be filthy, but the righteous will forever be right, and the holy will forever be holy? The only way for a person to be ready for that moment, and it's coming for every last one of us, sooner or later, the only way to be ready for that moment is to agree with what the Bible says about God and His holiness. Is to confess that you are not holy to Him. To acknowledge your sin to Him. To agree with God about what He says about your sinful condition. And to put your faith in the finished work. We sang earlier, it's finished. It's completed. It's paid. To put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, so that your sins might be forgiven. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not just in the future, but right now in real time. And that means if you're saved when this final decisive moment comes, you're ready for it. You're ready to stand before the judge, not on your own merit, but on the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ that we've sung about this morning. It will be final, and it will be decisive. Very quickly, verse 12, Jesus says He's bringing His recompense with Him, His repayment. It will be a perfect repayment. 
Not out of proportion, not a divine temper tantrum, because Jesus says he's the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. He is going to take everything into consideration from the very beginning to the very end. All of the evidence will be laid bare. There will be no question of whether or not you got a fair shake or not. Because the one who is the beginning and the end, who knows all, will take it all into consideration. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. In the context of Revelation, this is washing your robes in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb who died to purchase a people for God. Putting your faith in the death of the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Verse 14 says, those who have washed their robes will enter the city. There will be an invitation. And those who have not, will not. Those who have not washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will not be part of this city. They will be outside of this city. It's final and it's decisive. Number four, Jesus wants His people to know the truth about who He is. He wants you to know. He's not trying to keep this a secret from you. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it begins with these words in English, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's three words in the Greek, apocalypsis Iesu Christu. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That means this book is a revealing about Jesus. He's the subject of the book. As you interpret the book of Revelation, if you veer off into timelines, you've missed what this book is about. It's not a revelation of timelines. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. What do you learn about Him in this book? And as a revelation of Jesus Christ, it's from Jesus Christ. He's giving John these visions, and the visions are about Him. It's a revelation about Jesus Christ. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ. He wants you to know who He is. He's not asking you to make it up on your own. He's not asking us to sit in a circle and say, well, what do you think? Well, I kind of think this. What do you think? Do you think this? Does this? I don't know. That's not the, the aim of Christian people. The aim of Christian people is to open the book and say, what does Jesus say? He's telling us who He is. Even in this very passage, He's telling us. Verse 13, He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. That's something that is only true of Almighty, eternal God, and Jesus says it's true of Him. He's truly God. And He's also truly man. Because verse 16 says that He's the root and descendant of David. Truly God, truly man, the offspring of David, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes and promises and prophecies. He wants you to know who he is. Number five, the Spirit is at work in the church so that the people of God will long for the return of Jesus. Verse 17, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, and the bride, you meet the bride in chapter 19 and chapter 21. The bride is the people of God. It's the church. It's the redeemed. Those who were purchased by the blood of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 
the Spirit, Holy Spirit, working in the church so that the bride says, we want you back. We want you to come. We want you to return. And the one who hears are going to say, come. And down at the end, when Jesus says, surely I'm coming soon, John adds in, amen, come, Lord Jesus. This is the part of the passage I thought the most about this week, this longing for the return of Jesus. It's actually what we pray when we pray like Jesus taught His disciples to pray. And He taught them to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want Your will to be done here just like it's done there. And for that to happen, your kingdom needs to completely come. That means the king needs to come. We want the king to come back. We want him to return. That's what we pray for when we pray like Jesus taught us to pray. I don't know about your experience, but I think it's inevitable that the older you get, the more you long for the return of Jesus. Some of you are younger than me and some of you are older than me, so you can evaluate this however you want, but I think it's just a fact of life. The older you get, the more you long for the return of Jesus. I grew up in a church in the 80s and the 90s, all of that craziness about the second coming of Jesus. I grew up in a church that did a good job of sheltering us from the wild, crazy stuff out there. In fact, my pastor growing up was in our first service this morning, and I didn't say this just to pat him on the back. I didn't even acknowledge him by name, but our church did a good job of sheltering us from some of the wild out there stuff about the return of Jesus. But there was so much of it in the air in the late 80s and through the 90s that if you were around church, it impacted you. I was a a graduating senior in the year 2000. So all this stuff I heard for years growing up, in my brain, somewhere in the back of my brain, I grew up thinking, I'm never going to college. High school is it. I wonder what it would be like to go to college. I'll never know. I wonder what it would be like to get married or to have kids. I wonder what it would be like to be a grown-up. I didn't think I would ever get there. And I'm there. I'm there. Adulthood. Baldness. A daughter who's going to be a senior in high school. And somewhere since I've been here, just at this church in Odessa, I've gone from being a young pastor to a pastor. And on that note, I'd just like to say to you that there was a study released about a month ago that said the average age of a pastor in the United States of America, are you ready for this? Average age, 57. I'm a young pastor for a lot longer. But I think the older you get, it's inevitable that you start to long for the return of Jesus more or more deeply. And I thought about that this week. How does it happen? When does it happen? Why does it happen that way? I think part of it is just that as you get older, you know I'm closer to that moment of finality 
whether or not Jesus comes, I'm moving closer to that moment. And you begin to think about it more. You give it more consideration than you did when you were a third grader or a sophomore in high school. You know what I think also happens? I think the longer you and I live on this earth, the longer you're here, the more time you have to experience hurt and pain and loss and grief and ugliness and sin and all of it. And you don't move on from any of those things in life, do you? You learn how to carry them, and the Lord is faithful in that, but you carry those things, and you begin to realize over time, this world is not going to fix itself. My preacher in my church can't fix it. Grandma can't fix it. The only thing that will fix it is the return of the king. And so as a believer, that longing It grows. The Spirit is at work in the people of God. The Spirit says this, verse 17, and the bride says it. Uh, With your homework this afternoon, you can listen to Johnny Cash and you could read Romans 8. Romans 8 says this world is groaning under a curse, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. And in that groaning, The people of God are groaning. In fact, sometimes when we're praying, we don't even know what to pray. All we can muster is a groan. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit, when you're groaning, intercedes for you. And then he says later that Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for you. He prays for you. The Spirit of God and the Son of God pray for you on your behalf when you can only groan They intercede for you. And I don't have a verse for this, but I think part of their intercession and part of their translating work of your groans is to say, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. One last truth. Until Jesus returns, we must be people of the book. Big, capital B, book. People of the Bible. Verse 18 and 19 has a twofold warning. The first part of the warning is for those who would add to the words of this book. Don't add to the words of this book, or God will add the plagues of this book to you. The second part of the warning is don't take away from this book, Because if you take away the words of this book, God will take away your place in the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this book. Don't add to this book and don't take away from this book. Now, you understand, and I understand, we're smart people, that John, when he wrote these things in its original context, he's thinking about the book of Revelation. Don't add to it and don't take from it. But surely, as the people of God, we can look back and see in the providence of God that this was the last book written of all of the books in the Bible. Some 1,930 years ago. The last one written. The last one that the Holy Spirit carried someone along. 2 Peter 1. The last time that the Spirit of God breathed out these words to speak through a human being. It's the last book in the Bible, and it's last in your Bible for a reason. 
You understand, every book in your Bible is not in chronological order, but this one belongs last. It belongs at the end. And with the eyes of faith, surely we can look at this verse and say, don't add to this book and don't take away from this book. Surely we see that means revelation and all of God breathed Scripture. Don't add to it, don't take from it. Don't add in stuff to fill in the parts that you think are missing. Don't add in stuff that you have on a hunch. Don't take away stuff that you're not comfortable with. Don't take away stuff that you feel like doesn't jive in the 21st century. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. But get underneath it. Submit to its authority and allow it to control your life. That's where the book begins in Revelation 1.13 when he says, Blessed is the one who reads the book and hears the book. And keeps the book. Read it. And hear it. And keep it. How do we keep it? Will we worship the one true God? I would submit to you that that's the point of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. All the way up through the end of the book of Revelation. Worship the one true triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we do that? Will we listen to the book? We talk about the book. We sing about the book. We say to all the other churches out there in the Bible Belt, you can have your summer sermon series about the latest Disney Pixar movie. You can have summer at the movies. We'll keep the book. We'll keep the book. We'll say to everybody else, you have your latest book study from the latest expert, and we're going to stick to this book right here. We say to all these other churches, you get together and you can perform and you can entertain. You, you get together and you can celebrate how great human beings are and how much potential we have. We're just going to listen to the book. We're going to read it. We're going to hear it. And we're going to keep it. We're going to do that until Jesus returns. And the book says he will return. Father, as your people, we just stop to thank you for this book. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the Bible. Lord, we do not want to be people who add to this book, and we do not want to take from this book, but we want to read it, and we want to hear it, and we want to keep it. Father, we want to be the kind of people that are found worshiping the one, true, living, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit when the Lord Jesus returns. And we believe that He will return in a final, decisive moment of judgment. Lord, I pray for the people in this room that they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That they are ready for this moment, be it their death or Christ's return. God, I pray that we would be people who long for the return of Jesus. And Lord, as we live in this broken world, and we feel the weight and the burden of the curse, and we groan with all of creation, we long for the revealing of the sons of God. 
which will only happen at the return of the Son of God. So Lord, we pray that you would take our groans and that your Spirit and your Son would translate those into prayers that the Lord Jesus would come and come quickly. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as your people, we want to take a moment to do the one thing that we have come here to do, and that's to worship. To think about you, to focus on you, to talk to you, to sing about you, and to sing to you. Lord, be honored as we lift our voices and we sing about the day when Jesus Christ returns, the day when we're with you. We long for that day, we pray for it, and we sing about it even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.